yes, yes, yes. In this episode of Want Icons, we speak to Janine Standish of Hate Rock. Janine, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Tell us about what you've been up to. Mm, well, I, I'll start in in the moment because um, there's a lot. There's quite a lot to cover. Yeah, there is. Um, but I came out of a really, really good jam with Nigel yesterday, like one of the best on record. Um, and that's put me on a bit of a high. And then it was one of those things where we've been working on a track. You know when you know something's got potential to be really good, but you haven't cracked it. And I, haven't, I hadn't been able to work out what I was trying to say for, for the, this whole year with this song. I had all these different parts that weren't really talking to each other. And then everything came out in a really fluid way. Everything just kind of linked and all the all the puzzle pieces fit together. And it was just that, you know, those kind of unusual moments where you're just like, hey, it came from another place and it sorted itself out. And it couldn't have, we couldn't have pushed it. It had to take the time it needed to take to unravel some of the mysteries. So I'm on a, I'm on a bit of a high from that yesterday. Because um, me and Nigel had some really great flow together pre-lockdown two, and then we couldn't see each other like none of us could see each other, and we've been really kind of sloppy and a, and a bit shit <laughs> um, until yesterday. Oh, actually, you know, ish. But yeah, we're back. We're back. We had this great, great thing going on, and then it got ripped apart. And it's just taken maybe. Have we been out about three weeks? Mm, yeah, it's interesting that the unlocking of the city has kind of coincided with your yeah, mutual energy coming back together or something. It was just um, getting back into communicating with someone and playing music with someone. I, I had just been like a this um, isolated being and I forgot how to bounce off someone else. And I think Nigel's like that with me, but... Um, yeah, it was it was kind of strange. I was like, oh wow, okay, you know it's going to come back, but it just has to come back in its own time. And so um, I think we're. I'm sure Nigel's on a high today too. Hey, Nigel, <laughs> are, you, are you on a high? Yeah. I'm on a high. Most people <laughs> I've spoken to have said the same thing that yeah, they 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 really are energized by other people. But you know the the cliche or the trope is that the artist you know returns to solitude to creative but I don't think that's a sign of our times I don't think that is a sign of our times however um this year is the first year that I did isolate myself and make like a a solo piece completely in isolation I wanted to ask about that yeah yeah that was that was a first I'd love to hear about the contrast between that and hate rock for you um Nigel's just way more fun that's not really a describing word you'd think with <laughs> Nigel. Like if um, for the listeners out there, if you meet Nigel, he's just very cool and quite considered when you don't know him. But when you when you get to know him and you break through the barrier, he's so mu- he's really fun, and I have so much fun making music with Nigel. So that's stripped away when I'm on my own, and it's very different. It's um, it is maybe more like a play with the demons when you're on your own. Uh, rather than being in a band, which is so much, you know, it's cool. I love being in a gang. Yeah. So you're not in a gang on your own. Like I like to feel a bit, you know, hey, I'm, we're bad, we're a gang. And um, 
I think I think we play off that feeling a bit and mess around with that kind of gang, cult, band, rock band, really get into that. So when I'm on my own, it's like, you know, it's like, hey, you're a loser. Hey, you're a genius. You know, <laughs> the kind of devil and angel on the shoulders like in a cartoon. When did they start um, talking to you, the devils and the angels? Was it pre-lockdown or did lockdown really force their hand? Oh, whoa, lockdown. Well, definitely, come on, pre. We're all, <laughs> we've all got the devil. But, how, but however, <laughs> lockdown really sat with my shadow side like maybe never before and went into huge periods of fear, fear of death and, um, and then surrender to death and then I was able to create some music. But before that I was um, uh, quite scared of dying. I think I already have a predisposition to having a fear of death. For sure. In fact, my psychologist can back that up if I call her. Um, <laughs> we'll verify that after yeah. this. So, and and I'm I, I know people that don't have a fear of death. I don't think Nigel has a fear of death. And I had to. I just had to surrender to that. And you can really hear the surrender in that um, um, tape I made called Blue Hills. It's a um, it is a surrender into death. By the last track, I'm welcoming the Grim Reaper, into my actual recording studio with um, uh, Now's the Time to Come, Now's the Time to Know, um, Give Me Honesty with the Violence of Sea, Let the Waves Roll. So I was, it was really whatever will be, I can take it and I'll probably try and kick your ass as well. Um, but I and I, I worked with a psychologist on Zoom too. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did that change the dynamic? Because um, I I avoided my psychologist because of Zoom. It it's like you for the for the first minute it's a bit of a drag because you I don't know for me personally it's a bit of a problem. I'm sure you're like this too. I try and charm my psychologist so. You, you don't have as much charm on Zoom, but once I get over that, I forget that there's a computer there. I have a really good one, though. She's great. And I could just um, natter on for for hours. And, um, yeah, it just really feels like she's in the, you know, the, the, the chair, like a leather chair, and I just kind of set myself up in a chair. And you forget, it's like you're both in a chair in, in the room, and my cat's jumping all over me and like, you know, purring and kissing me and I'm pushing it away and then sometimes I grab my computer and I'll go make a cup of tea and I show her my house. And um, I actually spoke to her just before I came and um, I showed her, like, the garden and it's kind of different. It's more like you're talking to a friend because mm. I'm like, hey, here's, here's my life. And um, she actually said that she's been getting a lot out of seeing people's homes and making just some kind of added notes about... Um, their well-being or whatever it might be. So did you record this in the same space that you're talking to your... Yes. Yeah, so this is like your space. Oh. Tell us about it. Like, what does it yeah. look like? Tell, give, give us some insight. Yeah, I was making Blue Hills in the studio and what that looks like, it's, um, it is a large, dark red room with um, a big red Persian carpet, books everywhere, a wood fire a big Gyan Manic painting. It's huge. It's on Permalone. Um, and just 
uh, kind of a lot of broken um, instruments and broken electronic things everywhere, and um, and it's yeah, it's a really nice setup. However, usually, especially you know, with Nigel or when I had done some previous solo work, it had all been in Ableton. A lot of it had been in Ableton, and I hadn't actually picked up physical things until. Um, well, not as much until this album I actually got off the computer almost entirely other than to record and edit. But um, I was, you know, picking up a, a bass guitar and playing synth and things like that. And, um, I, yeah, I was having such a great time. I was trying to get out of my head and out of the computer and off the news. I wanted to be on my computer as little as possible so I didn't go to CNN or whatever. And, yeah, so I found myself just jamming for a day, you know, on a synth or on a bass or trying to make, I'm such a bad guitar player, but trying to make sounds on guitar. And it was like a, I was in my own little fairy tale world, um, yeah, escaping, escaping the news. And the room is, um, um, it used to be a library. So the wind, it's got a lot of windows, but they're quite um, skinny. So not much light comes in. So you have to kind of take breaks and get some vitamin D or you feel like you've been at Bakehouse or something <laughs> for too long. What's the um, the biggest contrast in the way that you approach like the the writing of the, of your words between like oh, when you're in a, a game really good and question. when you're alone? That's such a good question. It's something that um, I have nearly got the language for because I have been thinking about it a lot with um, with Hate Rock and with Nigel Wow, there's so much to talk about here. So <laughs> when I first started Hate Rock like 17 years ago or something like that, I was I used to write my lyrics down in, in notebooks and I was just one of these people that had post-it notes falling out of my pockets and notebooks everywhere and I'd, I would start in the middle of the book and then the end and I couldn't really find anything. And Just on that note, how did you start Hate Rock? Um, that's a funny story too. I was... Um, at, I was actually in Paran. I was around the corner from here. Okay, so my flatmate, I was in a share house in Paran, and my flatmate, John, he used to manage the bar at Orange. And I was there every day and night and morning. And um, it was our house, our share house, backed onto the bar pretty much so I would just kind of walk out the back door and then roll in and then John would slide a glass of red down the bar (laughs) and I think I did that for a year but one of these nights Sean Stewart um, was in a booth or he was sitting in at one of the tables and you know he's like 22 and in a linen grey suit with a really thick 17 years ago thick laptop you know like dad laptop or whatever and you know everyone's kind of getting rowdy and drunk and he's um looking like he's doing some coding or something and he was so beautiful and I said to John I'm like who is that guy and and John's like I don't know we've got to be his friend and so I got a, a bit of Dutch courage at this point and I went over to Sean a bit sassy and I was like hey what did I say something so lame like um, you're really beautiful from the side profile, and then kept walking. You know, kind of like a what do you call, like a compliment? But is it? How do you look from the front? And um, and we got talking, and we were hanging out all night. And 
at the end, he said he was a um, a coder, and he was he said I don't know if this is true, but he said that he helped invent the PDF. Anyway, so me and Nigel used to call him PDF for years, but yes. and and JPEG. Anyway, whatever. But um, <laughs> um, yeah, he had a very technical coder brain in this like funky, sexy bass player. Uh, yeah, he's and and also a composer. He's an amazing, talented musician. And um, but at uh, that night, Sean said that he was in a band called Hate Rock Trio, and um, and I wasn't in a band or anything like that. I was a designer, and um, I was like, Hate Rock Trio, that sounds kind of cool. So it's you and who else? And he's like, Oh, it's me and one other guy, Nigel. And I just thought it was so funny, and um, he was just so odd. And he's he said, I was like, Okay, so it's Hate Rock Trio, but it's two of you. And he's like, Yeah. And um, <laughs> and he, he said, well, maybe maybe you could be the third. And I was like, okay. And then I was, like, instantly. I had to meet Nigel. That's a whole other story. Um, it's for another time. But, I, yeah, I had to meet at Nigel. I think Nigel had to um, give um, approval or something like that. But Sean and Nigel had been in the band like a month or so. Was it like a job interview? Or no, it was – um, you. Nigel didn't really speak back then. He was very shy. Um, And so, in fact, and I was, you know, I don't think I'm an extrovert, but I'm not shy. And uh, navigating Nigel was um, was, uh, quite challenging at the beginning. Like I used to kiss Sean hello and, you know, Sean was like super social and and cute. And I remember I would um, try and, you know, give Nigel a friendly kiss on the cheek before rehearsal and he's like, that's not necessary, a hello is suffice. <laughs> and, um, and, <laughs> um, and I was just like, sure, cool, cool, cool. But, um, but uh, in no time, in a really short amount of time, even though Nigel was a man of very few words back then, when he did say something, I had... My, I laughed so much and for so long. His wit is like super sharp. Um, I'm really attracted to people like that. My husband Conrad's like that too. And um, in fact, you're both like that too. Oh, that's really sweet. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, but we, where were we? So that's how Hate Rock started. It was, um, it was a random meeting in the bar that I spent. Well, I guess it, I, if you're at a bar every night for a year, you're probably going to meet someone very interesting like the whole year I met Sean so yeah so we didn't know what I was going to do in the band actually I was messing around on the 808 to begin with cool and um Sean did give me a cd that you know I didn't just be like hey I'm you know I was like let me hear something so he gave me a cd that I played like the following day of some instrumental kind of mathy (laughs) um very long um, jams, and I, I, I really flipped. It was this crazy feeling that I felt like it was fate, um, and I didn't know what I was going to do, and they didn't know what I was going to do, so I was messing around with um, different things. I was kind of like hitting things and going all a bit like Neubauten and stuff, mm. hitting a tom with a hammer. I got all kind of silly, and, um, and I was trying to write beats on an 808 but I really really sucked and so um I picked up a microphone and I was just making you know the first ever sounds which were uh, probably just like toning um 
and really just the the breath and the vibration and playing with guitar and bass with voice was um I just felt like I I'd found my calling, and then I um we wrote ha and disco within um I don't know I feel like a couple of weeks, and um, I mean the lyrics are so basic, um you know ha <laughs> here we are at a disco you know um but I was. I was writing about the present moment and really getting it out and just feeling feeling lighter and I also felt so invigorated that I had a a voice where no one could interrupt interrupt me I think especially um as a girl knowing that um if there are ever times when um you know when you walk away from a party or something you're like oh if only I said this if only I said that um I could get all of this out. I could get everything out the way I wanted it to be through through lyrics and I could explain my side of the story and and things were really different back then. It was um everyone was everyone was a real nightmare. It was really dramatic <laughs> and jealousies and affairs and competition and like, you know, all the bands were kind of men and who were um, the other bands? At there this was time? um oh that's that's a good question. There was bird blobs with like you know, lots of tough boys, and one was my ex, and um, though we were really good friends, but there's you know always a bit of sparring, and um, there was. Uh, can you remember who was around in the early? Well, the first time I saw you guys play was at Pony with Devastations and yeah. Roland S. Howard. Oh wow, was that the first That's show? The first Pony show. was so much fun, and that Massive show, that show, show I watched. Um, there was a top booth and I had to kind of climb up and, and and look around the corner and hang off the wall while I was watching. Was that because the there were so many people? There were so many people there. It was absolutely insane. It was the only time I ever got to see uh, Roland play. Really? Wow. Yeah. Um, I don't think we met him that night either. We, we supported Roland a couple of times and the devastations and he never, yeah, he never caught our show and um, he, he, um, He'd play, you know, an amazing show, and then yeah, we we wouldn't see him again, or he he would have missed our show and not be interested. But um, we were so um, besotted with him. Of course, my God, and uh, yeah. Do you uh, remember the first time you you saw him play live? Was it at that show? Um, was it at that? You know what? It might have been. It might have been. Um. I'm just thinking if there was, um, or it would it would have been a small show that we played at because um, I'd only seen him almost like a, a man bat, like you know, <laughs> scoot past, you know, kind of in St Kilda, and everyone's like, "There's Roland, there's Roland, there's Roland, there's Roland," and um, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, it could have been it could have been that show. I don't think I never saw the birthday party or anything like that and I remember distinctly one thing about that show um was um feeling quite ambivalent about him before that but like always having a bit of distrust for the 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 member that goes on to do solo stuff kind of kind of thing at the time being very um, oh, really? just distrustful of of really? any of ev- everyone you know and then, and then so when he did then when he did um white wedding you know 
the Billy Idol song. Hello, of course. And, um, Such a great cover. And I got super, super scared because I knew the song, but I couldn't figure out what was going on. Yeah. And I remember having this, like, <laughs> almost like this anxiety overload because oh, he yeah. turned, turned this um, kind of, like, really, like, glorious um, pop song into something with, with so much evil and menace to mm. it. And it, it, that's when everything that he's doing, like, up to that point and historically everything made sense for Roland yep. like that mm-hmm. was that was the moment for me yep I'm with you there mm. um yeah I wonder it's that's so we could have been watching that at the same time in the same room that's amazing yeah I think yeah. um I'd love to talk more about Roland but I'd also like to get back oh. to <laughs> the post notes and yeah. the difference between hate rocks lyrics and what oh, you've yeah, done okay. more recently yeah I think I've worked I think I've worked this out because I've actually been thinking about it all all lockdown it's it's completely different um, ways of working, and they're completely different lyrical um, personalities. I'll think of something better than than that word, perhaps. But uh, so yeah, the post-it notes, you know, are falling off me and things like that. But what would happen is I would get really attached to. Oh my god, there's so much to tell you. Actually, I'd get so attached to lines like poetry, mm-hmm. and then I would be trying to jam them in to um, you know Sean's bass and. Nigel's guitar and I'd end up you know subtracting words or adding words and um sometimes they'd be slightly clumsy you know there's a couple of clumsy lines in Marry Me Tonight that I've kind of jammed in just like get in there and um and and that you know that's that's cool that's how uh I would write lyrics back then and then with Psychic 9 to 5 Club I had nothing, nothing written, and we just, me and Nigel, just um, we collaborated with Nathan Corbin in New Mexico, and I just arrived like a, no, no book, nothing, no notebook. I mean, and I was just uh, playing with pure melody, and that was the first time I would actually come up with um, a melody first, and then backfit it with um, with lyrics, and I was really delving into. A subconscious state rather than a conscious state where you would know this experience where a word w- that will come from the portal, you know, um, the shadow or, or the light will slip into your melody and you don't really judge it. And then the next thing you know, you know, another word will come in and then you've got a theme and then you you can write to that theme. And it, since then, I've, I, I hardly write anything down other than my dreams and most of the lyrical work for Hate Rock comes from um, comes from my dreams. It's always like an idea or something that happened that mimics real life, and and that's how I write. So with Nigel, it's um, melody first, and then fr- the lyrics are coming from the subconscious. But um, they're also the lyrics and the melodies are coming very soon in the writing process. So. Nigel's on guitar. Sometimes we don't even have a beat. Sometimes he's playing an acoustic guitar. And I'm kind of lounging around, sitting on the floor on a sofa, patting a cat, looking out the window, and we're just playing off each other like two melodic beings, his melodic guitar, my melodic voice, without lyrics. And then once these um, patterns start to merge or once we start to gel with each other, then I'll... I'll go into the portal and find what the themes are. but the And then we write around it and we bring in all the other instrumentation. But the guitar and the lyrics are the, the um, I guess, the first pieces of the puzzle. But with my, um, with my 
recent solo work, the the voice is the last thing to um, hit the composition, and I'm really just filling a space at the moment with a flourish, and so I'll play usually a bass line first. In fact, it, it's pretty much a bass line first, and then from there, once I've got a bass line that I like, and that can take a week. <laughs> Um, the rest can come together in about three hours. Um, then I fill the bass, the space of the bass with a beat, um, if I want one, synth, and then um, then I go into the voice last. And it's it's like the the instrumentation has already um, created a theme, and I already know pretty much what to say, and I'm I'm less heavy lyrically in my solo work because with ha- I'm trying to um, have a difference and be more playful and a bit more silly in my solo work and have different voices that are playing off each other in almost a comical way. And with Hate Rock Home, I'm, um, I'm storytelling and uh, there's like a, beginner, a beginning, a middle and an end a lot of the time where there's sometimes there's just a, a middle over in the solo work or, or an end. So did um, did any of that make any sense? It did. Okay. It made sense, and I'm interested to hear about um, how this fitted with your experience yesterday while you were jamming. So we can um, oh, okay. tie it into that because that seems you're on a high from that. Yeah, and, I am on a, I am on a high from that. And what part of that process kind of well, so, uh, so hate hate rock lyric work is much harder, and it um, and it and when it, when a song when you, when you finish a song in hate rock. I feel a sense of it's come out of me and I never have to think about it again. Um, especially every all musicians say this. It's like, oh, when it goes public, it's yours. It's not mine. But it's really true, <laughs> unfortunately. So I've said it. Okay. Um, and, yeah, I listen to our demos like a super psycho freak until the moment it is live for the public and then I don't revisit revisit our work at all. And I think that's just completely normal and the way everyone is as a musician. However, what were we talking about? Um, Oh, so it's, yeah, lyrically hate rock is um, much harder because um, maybe I'm putting more pressure on myself to um, create uh, a scene and also have something to say. I'm not so, um, I guess I'm not, so worried about what I'm saying in my solo work. It's more, um, it's more decorative. But I, even though I say that, a year later when I hear something, I'm like, oh, I actually had quite a deep message there. I didn't know, what, I didn't know it at the time. But um, with hate, hate rock, I actually am trying to be deep. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, I want to, I want to say something, and I want to. Um, I wouldn't go as far as saying change people's lives, but I would like to enhance their lives for sure and not just with sound and beauty and things like that, like also with a message. So I put a lot of um, pressure on myself and I'm quite a perfectionist with, you know, what stays and what goes. And at the same time, I want crazy melodies that stay with you in the shower and drive you crazy. So I want a lot from yeah, that. Yeah, I've, I've, I've definitely um, been infected by your your pursuit. Um, can you talk a little bit about the... Have you had a period of without dreaming? 
And how did that affect Hate Rock? You've I've never, never had, had that? a period. Have I mean, you, have, you, have you? Without dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> Has this ever happened to you? Like, have you ever entered a, a phase of not dreaming? Oh, my God. I could play you my recorded dream from the morning. Oh, please do. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, so you voice record them? Yeah. Yes. Um, I've only just started. Um, I did write them down. But this is so funny that I have this. I, don't, I haven't actually listened back to it myself, so I'm a bit embarrassed. And this could be a terrible idea. Let's try it. It's all right. I mean... We can always cut it out, can't we? No, we, no, can we can't. <laughs> but, so there's probably only five people listening to this, so you, okay. you'll be fine. Okay, so 4.19am. Oh, God, I'm probably going to call Conrad all these embarrassing pet names or something because he was leaving for work. Dream day. <laughs> you can't understand what I'm saying. I can't listen to this. <laughs> I could listen to that all day. My yeah. God. Anyway, yeah, it's come back to me. I was at a wedding and I yelled out into the crowd, does anyone else have the middle name Forbes? And the bride-to-be did. And that's all I can really remember. <laughs> I, I, I find it so amazing that you just did that because I would be... I'm pretty mortified, I'm not, I think but I don't, I'm like, I've I surrendered re- to death, so yeah, exactly, whatever. But yeah, what, what can affect you now? Yeah, that, I was kind of talking like the Queen. I know, there was something really I'm really, pro- I'm I'm really confused. I, I, I love the idea of you um, sitting up for your dream diary and putting on this persona of a very proper English <laughs> aristocrat. <laughs> I'm so confused right now. That's okay. Yeah, if you had moments, I mean, maybe when I was abusing drugs really hard, I had blanks, like I wouldn't dream. And then when you stop, you kind of have this intense influx of dreams. And I think that's something to do with you fucking with your sleep pattern and Mm. shit like that. I I found that like coming off gear, I would have like insane dreams and like nightmares the revenge always yeah the revenge. Coming back. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and so i remember nightmares. Being, yeah really brutal nightmares and i think what, like, can you remember what kind of nightmares or no, what the theme sadly, was i didn't record them and i should have woke up yeah but I, I often yeah that 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 would happen to me yeah I, I i kind of anticipated it i could feel like i knew it was coming and and it, and it's yeah it's something to do with a lack of um rem sleep um, and so, Is it really? Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I've had periods of nightmares, usually after, um, usually that coincides with grief. Right, yeah, um, yeah. And it's just a thing that you've got to get through. Mm. Um, but yeah, my dreams are always quite stressful, um, but I get so much out of them. I get so many ideas and songs. Yeah, I will. pretty much every Total Control song comes from... A dream. Get out of yeah, here. Yeah, what well, your process is pretty much exactly the same as mine. It was really interesting to hear it 
expressed like Can that. Can you tell me yours? Almost exactly as you said. I'll, I'll, Did you start I'll, off with the notebooks and then uh, change yep. to melody? Well, that was because I did straight jacket before that and writing lyrics for that. With the, like the, I would write to pretty much to the rhythm of the symbol, and it was like always like uh-huh. it was always like a yeah. very like the words had to be monosyllabic and just like very vicious. They had to just like hit you, right? So yeah, we'll I, get back I, to syllables in a sec. <laughs> yeah, there's something. Yeah, but I would always come to it like. Like you said, with with some words already planned, and then I just pick, like try and like get them to hit each syllable, and then total control. Part of the ambition when Mikey and I wanted to do that was to do something completely different in process to what we're doing with Eddie Current and Straight Jacket, and that meant like for me it was like I I came to it with no notebook, nothing. I just listened to it and um, like you were saying, used the melody to kind of craft the words out of. But that it would always be motivated by a dream like and it'd just be like a dream image like something simple like um like a one of the songs came out of a like a very strange nightmare of like um children in a production line with like these syringes in their back to kind of keep them working and just like that just like stay with me all day and then when I had to write the lyrics because I usually wait until I'm at the stage where I have to actually record them for the lyrics to kind of come together. Like I'll have little ideas of melodies oh, and stuff, really? but for the lyrics, like it's always the moment that I give it over is is like the last, very last moment. So yeah, that really resonated mm. with me. And, and Yeah, def- I feel you. I know, yeah, I get everything that you've gone through there. So, for sure. So yeah, the um the, the times when, when I'm not dreaming, I definitely like suffer creatively. And I'm, I'm very curious about, um, how much my actual intellectual development has been provoked by dreams. Like, mm. you know, because wow. that's my my earliest memories are, are yeah. dreams. Yeah. yeah, me too. Wow. I feel, yeah, that's crazy to hear. And I had never considered that you might do some intellectual processing through all of this, but of course you would. Mm. That's why we're so, you know, onto it. <laughs> <laughs> I find yeah. with my writing, I get all of my ideas before I go to sleep like in that weird limbo just as Uh, I'm drifting to sleep and it's never images it's always like phrases like I'll get infected with like a phrase and do you write it down yeah I write it down immediately like in your phone yeah 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 so I guess that's that's where I differ I'm I'm all about about to drift to sleep and I get this influx of phrases and sentences and things that and they just like I just like glitching like they're just constantly repeating in my head like this one thing would just be like this voice that just keeps repeating this no way yeah it's really weird but then i get nothing from my from my dreams i wonder you you get it all um it's and it's in like words it's in never words. in and do you yeah. hear it is it a is it you talking to you or is it just something that you can't like is it yeah i think it's just me repeating it in my head over and over again as soon as it comes it's really fucking and weird. is it how how long after this do you fall asleep i'm just trying to work out if, well, after if the I computer write it down. shutting down yeah 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 as soon as i write it down and then it's like i've given it to the okay. iCloud and i'm free <laughs> given myself to the iCloud and yeah I can sleep. Can you talk a little bit about your creative relationship with Roland S. Howard to kind of really flip it in a whole other direction? Because we abandoned him, but I really want to hear about that. Because you did that song with him, and um, he's yeah. like he's a he's a, a, oh, a he, figure he, of he's so much such mystique. An influence of mine. Yeah, it's so crazy. Even, yeah, even this demo from yesterday, um, I can hear 
uh, Roland's influence. I kind of lost some of Roland's influence perhaps with um, the hate rock album Psychic 9 to 5 Club. Mm. And then, but I feel like it's um, definitely coming back for the one we're writing at the moment. Um, probably lyrically because, and also where um, Nigel's on such, you know, he's on guitars where Psychic was a more electronic, but um, the the Roland influence and the and the way we worked together uh, was kind of like two cats. Like kind, of, it was just super cute. We had a, such a cute friendship. Um, he was really endearing, really funny, and he really liked me. And um, even though, you know, he was a, 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 I was going to say hero, that just was going to come out naturally. Like, um, he's just someone I really admired musically, but I, not just musically, I just love the way he held himself and the way he looked and um, the way, he, you know, the, the, his side profile, the way he talked. He was just <laughs> very, very strange and amazing person. Um, but th- more importantly, he really liked me and you always, you know, that's so ace when you really like someone and they really like you back and he wanted the best for me genuinely. And, um, so he was just a proper friend mm-hmm. and, um, that's a really nice feeling and we all make loads of friends, but uh, he was, yeah, just a, kind of a special mentor for me, and but was never patronising or giving me any advice or anything like that. He always treated me as an equal. Mm-hmm. I think he was like that with a lot of people, and um, actually maybe not. Mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but um, so we would kind of you know gossip, talk about Britney. You know, we had a a really great normal relationship like any of your friends, and he. Um, really liked my phrasing and subject matter and could see a lot more humour in um, Hate Rock than, say, people at the time could. And he saw a lot of humour and a lot of pop in what we were doing and I think he found me quite funny and I found him really funny. And um, and it was quite kind of a romantic friendship as well without the clichéd version of romantic. That's why I feel like we were two cats, you know, kind of... And um, and he after he um, produced um, "Marry Me Tonight," um, we had a really good time, and I learnt so much from him. And and I got we all myself, Sean and Nigel, we got so much confidence with um, with Roland's uh, um, just uh, champions uh, championing us. Um, we were really on a high and. He was great for us because we were going in to make our first studio album and we were all kind of being perfectionists and um, Roland got us out of that mode and got us into the mode of uh, do you feel anything uh, when you when you hear this piece of music or when you and don't you, it took it's taken years and years to realize like the more you overproduce something you lose the soul of it. But we were lucky to learn that really quickly through Roland. And it would always be do three takes, take one or take two. Don't even bother trying to do it anymore because you're not storytelling anymore. You are in your head and you're not in your body. And 
Um, so we really smashed that out really quickly. And, you know, when you hear your early stuff, you're like, oh, we could have done this, we could have done that. But it really is just a piece of feeling that captured a time. And and then because we were mates then, you know, and he was also really, really good friends with um, Conrad, who I started going out with. Um, and Roland, Conrad was in Roland's band. Um, a bass player in his band, and also Conrad had um, gone out with Genevieve McGuckin for four years, and that was also Roland's ex. So there was, it was, it, there was no like kind of competitiveness or jealousies and all these kind of like intermingling of relationships. We were just all such great mates, and Genevieve became a really close friend of mine and still is. And the, you know the fact that she's dated. Conrad is like awesome. <laughs> it's it's just not a thing. And um, and Roland had asked me. He actually asked me to make an album with him over email. And I was just like, hell to the yes, yeah, that would be great. But at, at this point, we had moved to London and Berlin. And but um, I said big yes to that. But um, I'd come home for Christmas every year from living overseas and obviously hook up with Roland, have a coffee, have a um, cigarette. And Roland was like, hey, let's do, I'm finishing up, you know, pop crimes or, you know, three quarters of the way through, let's do a duet, Johnny. And I was like, that'd be great. But I was like, oh my God, because he's like, you bring ideas and I'll bring ideas and we'll, and we'll, we'll meld them all together and we'll meet, you know, at Pelican in St Kilda over coffee and cigarette and we'll chat ideas. So I'm I'm writing all this stuff, you know, um, and feeling the weight and the pressure of like suddenly my friend, um, it's like suddenly he's now Roland S. Howard, and I'm feeling like, oh, I don't know if I'm if I'm worthy of this, and I did feel um, yeah my own insecurities. But when as soon as I'd hang out with Roland and we talk ideas over coffee, it was always over coffee, and I'd always pay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, he he was just yeah he just made me feel like Sean and Nigel made me feel that we were all on the same you know level and it's all cool and fun and and then but one particular time Roland had the neatest handwriting and he'd written out um a song and his parts of the song with like little gaps for me to fill which I filled later and it was I <laughs> and I've still got the piece of paper. He gave me like this, um, you know, immaculately written, I Know a Girl Called Johnny by Roland S. Howard. You know, wow. yeah, he, he'd been writing notes like that since he was 15 or 16. It's like he knew that they'd be in a museum or something, you know. Um, he probably didn't know that, but he was just um, so considered in this way and charming. Anyway, um, the... The um, the lyrics had everything in order in the structure, you know. I know a girl called Johnny. Um, you know, she's a villainess. You know, she's a disastrous. Like he had all the different verses, and the chorus. Um, she puts um, his finger. Hang on. <laughs> she puts his fingers in his mouth as the chorus, and and then a little gap with like you fill in here and you fill in here with your two verses about me. Cool, <laughs> and. Um, I was I was super kind of blushing like this is a little bit risque, Roland. <laughs> um, but I thought that I should act, you know, like, hey, that's no big deal, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> and then I filled in my little, you know, he's a 
pin-up poster high school crush business and then we went to Birdland and, yeah, we knocked it out in a day and then, yeah, he um, wrote me such a cute email when it was all um, mixed and everything. He was like, get your silky little ears over this little milky treat. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's how we kind of used to, you know, talk to each other, kind of, yeah, in a cute way and, um, yeah, he was so happy with the song and... Um, yeah, it's such a it's a great thing to have existing in the world. I think yeah, it's so nice to hear the backstory of that. I would like to also just hear what Rollins Howard had to say about Britney. Can you remember? Oh, he lo- he loved Britney. He really liked Britney, and so did I. And this was you know there was always um, Roland was um, really into popular culture. Mm. And um, wait, were you talking about Britney Spears? Yeah, we're talking about Britney Spears. Yeah, is that what you, who, the Britney you were talking I about? I assume so. Yeah. What Britney is this? I was problem? thinking about like the place in France or some shit. <laughs> oh my God. It's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I, I, it suits his, you know, dandyish look. That's, that's, I wish he could, he, I feel like I can hear him laughing yeah. sitting across from us. He'd find that so funny. Um, uh, but, oh, who did we like at the time? So we both quite liked Britney Spears' voice, including, I can't believe I'm going to say this, even her vocal fry, which I hate on any any other voice, that put on like vocal fry, Britney's is, is cool. And um, he really liked Toxic. Um, he really liked the song Toxic and Hit Me Baby One More Time. He probably wanted to cover Hit Me Baby One More Time that, in a way, I can imagine. He never said that, but I can imagine it would have been um, pretty cool. And um, uh, he also really loved um, Japanese anime and he had lots of little plastic toys around the house, which was kind of unexpected. Yeah. You know what I mean? I never expected that. Yeah. I I still, yeah, going with the Britney, Britney kind of thing, Mm. I would expect um, like goblets. Um, with like uh, yeah. candlesticks but with like melted candle. Well, drink there was everywhere. a bit of that too. Yeah. There was a, a bit lot of, of that gothic too. literature. Yes, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of gothic literature. There Stuffed was, raven. There was in bats the and r- lots of ravens um, in amongst Japanese anime and um, you know glossy lip gloss pop culture. Yeah, um, he had he had all he had all of that. He was really fun. He was living with Genevieve McGuckin and. You know, there's always a raven and a bat and a black cat around with mm-hmm. Genevieve. I don't know if you've met Genevieve. Not, she's no. oh, she's so wonderful. Yeah, and um, yeah, so they definitely still had you know, and all the literature and books piled up everywhere and ashtrays with cigarettes overflowing with a raven on them and things yeah. like that. But in amongst, you know, probably Roland Sneaky New Weekly and <laughs> 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 and um, you know, and really liked pop TV and um, you know. Very similar to me and Conrad. We're just, mm. you know. What can you t- uh, tell us about the pop culture breakthroughs you've had during the last few months? Like you've had some time to sit down and soak it all in. Yeah. Oh, there's so many. Um, only yesterday there was a, um, it's, I guess it's like a meme video of someone pretending they're like the leader of the galaxy accepting Earth into the group and... They say, I can't believe you turned a wolf into a pug. And I, I'm like, what does that mean? And then there's a whole world of 
every of memes about the wolf being turned into a pug. It was like the wolf, this beautiful, majestic dog you've t- humans have turned into over 10,000 years this. And it's like a pug's face with its tongue hanging out. And so that, I feel like that was some pop culture that everyone seems to know about, but you both don't, I can tell. No, we're dreadful with no. pop culture. Really? Like, we depend on conversations like this Okay, to just yeah. the wolf to the pug, you can even just drop that in party conversation and everyone will be like, oh, yeah, man, Great. wolf yeah. to the pug. Yeah, wolf to the pug. so out of touch. Um, uh, what else? I, I guess, um, hmm, I don't know, the things will... There's a lot. There's a lot. Cause yeah, you've I, had I, some time. You've yeah. had some time to soak it in. Yeah. Um, but there hasn't been extreme amounts of pop culture um, in a way other than everyone since the pandemic. I've been really proud of the human race in a lot of ways for the humour, especially on Twitter. Um, mm. The humour, like, you know... There's we're real all... humour on Twitter? <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> yeah, I really think that... Oh, and I think um, following... A bunch of um, comedians okay. has helped. Yeah, yeah. Those kind of front-facing comedians where they're mm. playing different roles like Meg Stalter. I don't know if you've come across her. Um, that's a bit of pop culture. She, she's so fantastic. Um, and how people are dealing with death and the humour that I've seen come out of that. And TikTok exploding with like, you know, crazy you know, everyone dancing. It's just been so fascinating for me to see that everyone is doing crazy dances on TikTok or like front-facing comedy to just to get by. And I thought that was really beautiful mm. amongst all the politics and, and everything. It's, you know, and, and so much um, grief and turmoil more than any, in any year that maybe we've lived through-ish, you know, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, I mean, uh, DX mentions this quite often, like how uh, we wonder how our city is going to change as a result of this trauma that we've collectively experienced. Yeah, what do you kind of um, see as the effects? Because you work in fashion, so there's already been effects of like this in terms of like a lot of runway shows going online and stuff like that. Like, um, what can you see happening in Melbourne fashion, for instance, um, as in the next? kind of year um i i do know um i do know it sounds funny fashion um i know fashion hello um uh yeah i work for um melbourne fashion week for the last four years i've been there a posh creative consultant but i have i have motives behind what i'm doing because i'm actually quite anti-fashion which i tell everyone openly um i like i like clothes but i don't like fashion um, That's fascinating. Unpack that a little bit. What do you mean when you say sounded you're... really cool? Don't make me. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't elaborate. Um, but uh, you know, and I do. I really like. Um, but I don't like a lot of clothes. I get really depressed by um, the idea of you know a woman's wardrobe and or how it used to be and and how I could see it going. And I fell into this role. Um, I always fall into strange roles. I never know where I'm going when it comes to to that um, design and art director side of my life or creative side, creative director side. I just fall into things, and I've I haven't had a CV or even a folio in ten years. I've just I just meet friends and they give me work, and mm-hmm. the next thing you know, I'm the creative consultant for Fashion Week. But I um, have enjoyed this so much 
because I've been able to, I guess, bring in some of my political agenda into Fashion Week and um, in a kind of stealth way, but not let anyone feel like they're being pressured into anything because it is the City of Melbourne, um, the council, and also the whole idea of this particular Fashion Week is for um, designers to sell. So, but I guess my agenda has been more to make it more of a cultural event of ideas for Melbourne. Mm -hmm. That's on the side. That's kind of a no-brainer. But also make people buy less has always been the agenda. I couldn't get my head around, you know, seasons and trends and, hey, you know, now this is in fashion. Your whole wardrobe's obsolete. So just by increments and by working with um, people that trust me, it's um, been really enjoyable to see that um, now they're proudly um, taken on and I'm so proud of them, like a whole buy less, um, not just buy less, but um, buy weirder, more expensive, local, transparent fashion or clothes. And um, so it's like buy less, be weirder, be uh, don't buy basics that you'll just end up in landfill, you know, like Uniqlo T-shirts or whatever, like buy some, you know, crazy jacket that will define you and you will identify with and then have more emotional attachment to it and you're less likely to want to sell it on Facebook. Like all of these recycle culture initiatives really are just in my mind making us feel less attached to our clothing whether it's um, marketplace on Facebook and a lot of, you know, people are like, hey, this has never been worn and it's you're buying brands because you know they'll sell. Just trying to eradicate all of that and get everyone to feel that your clothes might be sentient beings. Mm. And they, What do you make of all this, like, fetishization of exclusivity, like like a thousand run labels of a, a thousand runs of these sneakers or something and then suddenly oh, they become so a commodity stupid. you know like yeah it's not it's definitely not for me there's um i think i call it the knob limit and every item of clothing like if you wear a pair of jeans and they're over three hundred dollars you've gone over the knob limit and trainers like i've got all the different prices for trainers is like can't go over 250 um jeans can't go over 300 and it's um uh there'd have to be a pretty special reason and even then you would still be a knob mm. um knob limit yeah yeah and um uh, or the douche limit there's all these different terms for it but um we were talking I, I, about I don't i hate exclusivity sorry i just no. i really mm. really don't like it um uh at all yeah, full start. <laughs> well, we were talking to um, to our friend Spider, who kind of hand cuts and makes records um, at his house. At these really kind of um, arduous process of making them, and and um, mm. the subject kind of came up about uh, Mahmoud was just like why why records like why and and similar to the idea of like clothing, like records of experiences thing, where they've gone from being something that you. Um, like you adore and it's yours and you listen to it and now and and um oh, it's so, yeah, being it's more so, more something that passes through you mm. um and it's it's kind of uh part of this general trend where all the physical things in our lives like become facilitated through our phones as much as possible like music um it, we don't need a record because it can go 
music can go through your phone now and 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 stuff like that but closes can't you, you can't download a shirt well, or something you, you can because there was a real thing about um uh wh- what you're wearing on Instagram and you could have like a CGI wardrobe um and and you know cuz so many influencers even though influencers feels like a post covid word i feel like there aren't any influencers anymore cuz it was you know I, I don't know that that's a whole other thing really but they're just so lame anyway um they uh would wear something once and then as long as they documented it on instagram it was done you know they never needed to see that beautiful piece of clothing again cuz it's it's done but um yeah people were trying to be come up with more sustainable ways because of this like instagram culture and a cgi wardrobe was one of those ideas so you can have your clothing on your phone well that's wild i <laughs> didn't even consider that yeah that our phone is just a portal for it's just another brain that's sure. what that is now and you know none of us will i can't i can't work now without google maps and i can't spell at all anymore um and i can't get anywhere i've just compartmentalized all these things and put it on my phone and um i imagine it's worse with um you know people in their teenagers and early 20s would just be completely cooked <laughs> i'm fascinated by that when for you like i always found that i find that my the best inspiration comes to me when i'm walking through like secondhand bookshops and it's it seems like one of those old school things yeah where, like you actually look at the shelves and sometimes a book will just scream out to you and you don't know why it could be the cover it could be lit by a ray of light it could be something yeah. and and then you find i feel that too but but with the with our phones now the algorithms kind of give us inspiration in different ways have yeah. you found that's changed your music like no i don't i don't really get um anything musically off my phone that I can think of. If it's mm. happening, I'm not aware of it. I'm, sh- I'm sure there's something. Mm. Um, I'm like you. Everything's physical. Mm. It's, um, it is, uh, yeah, secondhand bookshops is a, is, a, is a big one. But it's also um, interaction with physical people and the mm. way those people make me feel, whether it's good or bad. And then that goes, filters into my dreams. I'm really not getting anything music musically off my phone. I think I would, everything I get off my phone would be visual, mm. for sure. Oh, in saying that, me and Nigel around Psychic 9 to 5 Club, we used to keep a private Tumblr um, for each other and we would just throw a lot of um, reference in there that was all from Tumblr and visual and then that informed the mood of our music. So I take it back. It has, <laughs> take it all back. Um, we have worked like that. We're both, Nigel's as visual as I am. And um, one image can spark the whole vibe of an album. And it, ca- and it could come from online, the more I think about it. However, personally, I love, um, I love reference books that just are like an old book that just might be on one particular seashell or... Mm-hmm a book of Persian rugs and um, I, rather than <clears throat> a lot of design books that try and be the best of everything, I like really specific reference books that are um, got a lot of dust on them 
And I've got like great books on one particular type of fern, you know, and and they're all black and white and weird and um, or yeah, just quite specific subjects. I get um, way more ideas from that. Could you tell us about some of the images that you would use to kind of um, orient us to prepare for this new hate rock record? Like what images will put us in the space? Um, there's some images. Oh, you know what? We're, we're about, um, we're more than halfway through and it's just at the point um, where like we're five or six tracks in and only yesterday, it's really amazing you said this, yesterday is the first time I put everything together as a group. You know, some things will stay, some things will go and we'll obviously add add a lot more. It's the first time that I allowed myself to see what theme was talking to me. So we're actually at the image point right now, this second, from yesterday. And um, the on- yeah, the only thing that has come to mind is this one idea of being in double limbo and we don't really know what that means but um there's definitely some there's an idea of um waiting and time that's um some themes that are coming forward but no colors and no imagery we haven't got the mood board yet but it's happening mm. it was there any any images that particularly surprised you on previous records mm. Mm-hmm. There was. There's still one that's quite haunting. And it was... Um, Nigel had... I felt like I was in the dark web or something. Nigel had um, posted this really creepy um, doll's head um, that was really dark, um, darkly lit. And um, it, and uh, I think it actually came from um, one of Dennis Cooper's scrapbooks. Wow. And um, that kind of, st- and from there, this kind of very creepy, kind of dark webby kind of <laughs> vibe, um, we went into pastel colours mm. instantly. Um, and that Psychic 9 to 5 Club really was built on images first of um, uh, pastel colours and uh, nightclubs from the 80s in California where. Um, um, they were alcohol-free nightclubs, like the first water water bars, and the images of um, and they were really pastely lit, and um, very cool, kind of gothic-like hip people drinking water and listening to music, and we really dived deep on this idea because N- Nigel has never really um, been able to drink; he's kind of allergic to alcohol, and at that point. I was really giving it a break because I'd really given it a push for like 10 years previously. So I was having like a little time out. And um, so whenever we change what we're into health-wise, we have to back it up with like really beautiful aesthetics. So it seems like we're doing it for artistic reasons <laughs> rather than just mm. I'm an alcoholic. Or, <laughs> you know, so um, <laughs> uh, we found these... We, I I went deep into the idea of like not drinking or getting wasted when you're listening to music and like ho- hooking up with people is super feminist because it's women usually who are making bad decisions. Um, 
and getting themselves hurt more than um, I guess you know men are also getting hurt too. But um, it was um, the idea that uh, really taking control of your physical space as a woman when you're going out and making good decisions and making rather than just some you know hook up that you might regret actually making long-lasting friends that will die in your arms and and bonding over music and that's where the idea of like psychic like you're meeting the people you're meant to meet you're not just being kind of blurry visioned and and being charmed in the moment or fooled you're actually you're you have heightened senses and you're listening we were like what music would we make in that club and then we made the psychic one to five club Litmus Media.